I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Robin Rom. She's the author of The Mercy Papers. Robin Rom's words haunt me, bring me to tears, and inspire me. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. We welcome author Robin Rom to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. I just finished reading The Mercy Papers. What led you to write this book? Um, well, many things actually kind of uh, came together to write that book. But the, I think the main impulse was that when my mom was sick for a really long time, my mom got breast cancer when I was um, 19 and she died when I was 28. So she was sick for nine years. Um, and part of, part of the experience that I had was going through a traumatic loss in my twenties. That was like a particular kind of loss and people in my peer group really didn't know what to say or how to behave. And I'm not sure that gets a whole lot better when you're older, but I think it gets a little better maybe. But, um, the project was definitely to, in some ways, answer the question, like, how are you? And to also confront the platitudes head on, you know, like, well, I'm not actually fine. And I don't actually necessarily want to buy into these like, well, she's in a better place or, you know, um, oh, well, at least she's not suffering anymore. Any of these kinds of things I wanted to write something accurate, something that felt like really what it was like to go through a loss. And I think the other piece was that I wanted to write a book that wasn't necessarily a book about healing, but was a book about loss because we're in such a hurry in this culture to get to healing. And I really felt rushed by a lot of the kinds of conversations I was having, which were about the five stages and the healing and the this and the that When Actually, there seemed like a lot to learn just from the experience of the loss and a lot to see and a lot to feel. Are you, you're an only child? I am. And so I'm sure not having someone, you had to figure this out all by yourself. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a, a big extended family. I was fortunate to have, my mom had some really wonderful friends that um, are in the book and that came and that helped me through it. And they're back in my life again, helping me with my baby. So it's, it's like a bigger family than it is. It's a, it was a very particular and lonely thing. And that's how it felt at the time. So tell me about your mother. My mom was a trial attorney. Before that, she was a teacher. Um, she was really very bright and very passionate and opinionated. Um, and I think like kind of a sensual person too. Like she loved clothes and color and our house was, you know, full of very like mom chosen art and sofas and um, she loved animals and we definitely had like a tumultuous, um, when I became a teenager, we, we did a lot of fighting. She was, you know, it's it's really something having a trial attorney as a mother, but you know, you gotta have a, a lodge, you gotta win, you know, you gotta, you gotta be good. So, um, that sort of characterized my teenage years, but then she got sick and she, you know, she wanted to have a different kind of relationship and a different kind of connection with me. 
um, when she got that diagnosis. And so my 20s, instead of being a period of time where most people go away from their parents, mine was definitely like a, a, a return, you know, working on that relationship with her and talking a lot and um, connecting. So it was, a, it was a sort of backward journey, I guess. Like in my 20s, I came home and in my 30s, I went and did other stuff. But um, yeah, so that, I mean, I don't know how you can really summarize someone. I think the book paints a picture of her that I couldn't possibly paint, you know. What does the Mercy Papers mean? Where did that come from? The Mercy Papers, so the Mercy was this quality that I kept coming back to in my head when I was going through all of this. Like, what does it mean? Um, Why can't we find it? And there there seemed to be an absence of mercy with regard to my mom. So I got this dog when she was sick and I named the dog Mercy And when I was trying to find a title for the book, we couldn't name it. It was a hard book to name for years on my laptop. It was the dying mother diaries, like dot, dot, you know, and that's not a very good title. Um, So when my editor and I were thinking about it, she liked the idea of diaries, you know, this sort of like in the moment writing this urgent kind of note taking. And so like, we thought about naming it the Mercy Book, the Mercy Diaries. And then I think someone came up with papers. I no longer remember who. And my editor thought papers seemed to feel right. Like the book felt like the papers that you keep during something. You know, it felt slightly raw, um, not super over edited or, you know, she wanted to keep that raw quality. And she thought that the papers suggested that. I love in the book, you went through many dogs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to find the right dog for you. You got to read the book because there's so many dogs. One of the dogs chewed its way out of the house and kept running away. And But Mercy, and you had an instant connection. Yes, which I thought was unusual. But Mercy has that instant connection with just about everybody. (laughs) And she, and she still, it's a girl, right? She... And she's, she's still yep. with you. She's not so sure. I just had a baby um, and she's not so, she's, you know, she's curious about the baby, but this is a big life change. She's been the baby for a long time. So I could imagine. And did you, you have a little baby girl? Oh, oh, Sylvie. Wow. oh, amazing. Yeah. So your mom left you her journals. Yeah. Do you find yourself painting through those? Um, how many were there? Oh, that's a good question. There weren't, there weren't zillions of them there were probably 10 and or maybe even fewer and you know I really don't and even when she gave them to me I looked through them I don't know I haven't really returned to them they're in storage she was so worried about those journals that they would contain things that were you know like when she was angry with me she would write a an entry about what a butthead I was being or something and that that would upset me but those things never upset me. And the truths in those journals, when I did read them, just felt right. You know, it's sort of a lesson in, in writing memoir in a way, like if you're accurate, emotionally accurate, and you're dealing with people who are somewhat stalwart anyway, like you can write those things and it's not going to cause the same pain as dishonesty causes. Dishonesty causes more pain, I think. But, um, yeah, none of it was a terrible surprise because we had talked so much and I had been there for so much of her decline that none of it was shocking. Um, 
my, I had also recorded her. We did a bunch of recordings before she died where I'd ask her questions and she'd answer them. And I was thinking about them the other day because I've also not listened to those. People told me they would be so important and I'd want to listen to them. And I still haven't reached the point where I want to do that. In the, even in the book, you talk about, you know, doing some of these recordings and, and you guys felt silly. Like, yeah. you know, you try to start and have this poignant conversation and it's just like, well, it's sort of awkward. Yeah. And then she would, she was a teacher at one point. And so she would like kind of get all teacherly, you know, like she would <laughs> up front and she would start to, to talk and it would feel disingenuous and, or like some kind of lecture. And then I'd get annoyed, you know, typical like parent child stuff. So I, I, I can't, I don't know what the recordings would be. The cool thing about the journals and the recording is would be like when she talked about her childhood and, and things I may not remember, you know, actual anecdotes and history um, of our family and of her childhood. And like that stuff feels like someday I may want to return to all of it just to find the details about, you know, her bedroom when she was young. Cause I remember we did talk about some of those things. How old is your little baby? She is two months. So I'm sure you think you're thinking a lot about your mom. Yeah, she's named too. She's Sylvie Jacqueline. My mom's name was Jacqueline. So she's, in some ways, I almost wonder if that's the beauty of the journals and the recordings is, you know, she can listen to the to those at some point with me and experience my mom in a certain way. You and your family had hospice. Mm-hmm. And I... I was really intrigued of how you talked about it um, because, you know, you never know what people are going through when hospice comes in and talk to me a little bit about your experience. Was it a good one? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't think it was. (laughs) And I think that there was something sort of, there is something a little taboo about that, you know, to hospice is, supposed to be um, very comforting and a, a real gift to the dying to sort of smooth the road to a peaceful death and to help the family cope um, and to be there in ways that the family maybe can't. Uh, and so to have a bad experience with hospice feels sort of like being mad at your rabbi or like being, you know, like pissed at your priest or something. It's like not right. But um, we had a, uh, caregiver who I felt really wasn't tuned into the intricacies or emotions of my particular family who had sort of a agenda that was, um, that she had decided on in an abstract way. You know, this is how the dying are. This is what the dying need rather than, Oh, this woman, Jackie is dying and here's her daughter, Robin. And, you know, like it felt like so many things felt when I was going through that, like a, you know, kind of a, a rote response that she had. Um, and yeah, just, I think that I might've not liked anyone who came just because of the, the heightened emotion of the whole situation, but that we were particularly poorly matched. Um, and I go into that in, in great detail in the mercy papers. I don't know if you want me to go into my memories of it here, but I think that, you know, that everyone does not have the the greatest experience. Um, and sometimes, whether that's, you know, clouded by your feeling of a 
impending major loss, or like you said, you know, it can be robotic. Um, there's many times, um, even working in a hospice, uh, in the hospice industry that, um, I hear people, you know, say, um, oh, we're going to order a hospital bed. I'm like, well, do they want it? Right. And, and I think that sometimes it is very good to hear some, um, not so good experiences because that way it makes us better in the end of life industry. Um, but it hospice is not always perfect. Yeah. And I think it was particularly like, because my mom was sick for nine years, there was, I mean, I think our family felt, and my dad is a physician. Um, we felt like we'd been kind of dealing with this for a really long time and suffering was part of our experience and had been part of our experience for a really long time. So to have someone come in and say, well, the suffering, there's suffering here. You know, we should, we should end the suffering. It's like, well, there's been suffering here for, you know, nine years. We're very, we're very, all of us, including my mom are kind of used to suffering. And I, I don't know that, you know, she chose to suffer, and not die for many years to stick around and be part of the family. And, you know, I think that having a a stranger come in and just say, well, time's up, you know, we're going to talk about this in a different way felt really um, weird and wrong. And like, like somebody wasn't listening, you know, it was, it was just, yeah, it felt distinctly, foreign her view of suffering to our family and then she you know she wanted me to tell my mom it was okay to die that's in the book and it really wasn't okay for my mom to die and my mom I think that that people sold my mother short in a way like that she was needing to hear things platitudes and lies and things that um she didn't need to hear I really believe that my mother didn't need to hear those things that she knew I didn't want her to die. She didn't want to die. She was going to die. And that we all understood that, but that the honest thing was there was a lot of love and there's a lot of connection and it was going to be terrible. And, um, I can understand, like, if you really have gotten to the point where you feel like you can say it's okay to die and mean it, you should say it. But if you aren't to that point, why should you? I mean, it's I think the dying person would know you didn't mean it. I mean, you know, like it's it's important to to do the thing that makes sense for that relationship. When I was reading the book, I I, I kind of got a couple of chuckles, even though um, because of how you talked about the hospice yeah. nurse, I'm like, woo! I'm glad I wasn't her. Um, you know, I'm like, <laughs> holy cow! Um, because I, I'm I'm wondering if she knows that it's about her. Um, oh, wow. And <laughs> but I, I what I love about it 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 was real and raw. And, um, and sometimes I had to actually put down the book and I, I, I was, I thought you were in New Mexico, but I wanted to get into my car and drive to you and just hug you. Oh. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, I mean, you were in your twenties and you were angry about it. Oh, I just felt so much compassion for you. Um, you know, this is not an easy book to read, but it is so truthful. And that's what came out in every word to me. But there was one segment that really 
took me back and I, I felt like I was in your shoes, but it was when you were at a hospice uh, support group and you were young and you had all of these other people who had years and years um, with their mother. They died in their 60s and 70s and 80s. Tell me a little bit about that, sitting around there in your mid-20s. Yeah, that was rough. I I had, I was back in the Bay Area and I went to the hospital or some kind of support group for daughters who lost their mothers. And everybody was, I think the second youngest person there was probably in their late 50s. Um, and I was 28. And um, it just made me really, I really felt that my loss was not worse, not anything like that, but really different from theirs. Um, I was a teenager when my mom got sick. It colored my decisions in my 20s really profoundly. Um, there was something, you know, it's, it didn't feel, you know, these, these women had lost their mothers when their mothers were 80, 90, 100 years old. And there's just a different, I think that really is a different experience than losing a mother who got sick when she's 46 um, or 47. And so it didn't feel like one of the reasons to go to a support group is to feel a sense of connection and to feel like, Oh, well, I went through that too, but I had a hard time feeling that way. And I yearned for a group of younger, like a, a group for people who lost their moms in their twenties or, you know, but there were some for children but there weren't, like, I just, I, I couldn't find something that made a lot of sense for someone who was, you know, not a child, but not 60. Did that sort of kind of inspire you to write this down? I think I, once I was well into the project, I realized that that was part of the project. I don't know that it, it had occurred to me until I sort of started to see the project differently as I began to complete it. Then it made sense that, that it was in part about that. And when it came out, you know, I felt so alone throughout the whole thing and, and in these support groups. And then the book came out and all these people started writing to me and saying, you know, oh, this resonated and I had this experience and I lost my mom when I was 22, 24, 25. And I all of a sudden realized how not alone, you know, I really was. And there were tons of people who were just waiting for validation and, you know, the experience to be represented in a complicated way, the way that it felt, you know, not just like, oh, not in some lifetime movie version of losing a mother, but in all of its fury and confusion and beauty. And like, you know, it's a big mess to lose a parent. And it's hard to, unless you really focus on the specifics, you can't really explain it. No, you can't. There, there's the last words, the sentences in, in your afterwards. Um, I, I tell you, it, you, you write, if this book does land in the hands of those in the midst of a tragedy, I can tell you this, it will never leave you. And I think in the complex way of truth that that, that is the most comforting thing. I, when I, do you know how many times I went back and read your afterwards? I, I, I was like, so moved. Um, and I, 
I cried. I mean, I just, it touched me because I, the, the pain of, it came across in your words of, of losing your mom. Uh, the, when your mom talked a little bit about, um, you know, that journal piece in your afterwards of, of, um, gosh, when, when our lives are small and local and now that this book is happening, it's like your mom's changing how people face end of life and you're changing and relating to people in their twenties, um, that they're not alone. And it just seemed, it just seemed interesting how she thought it was so local and really here I am on the other side of the nation talking to you about your mom. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing about books and about, you know, the power of a story told honestly. And this is probably one of the most honest books uh, about end of life that I've read in a very, very long time through the eyes of someone who's experienced and, and not through the eyes of a clinician that don't know that walk. Um, and you don't know the walk unless you've experienced it. And it's still a different walk than anybody else. Years later, do you believe in the healing process? Have you started? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I believed in the healing process even then I just felt rushed to have a certain kind of healing, you know, like your mom dies and two weeks later, people kind of want you to have gone through a bunch of things and to feel better. I mean, it's understandable. If you see someone you care about in pain, you want them to feel better. I do that to my partner all the time. If he has a problem, I want him to feel better. And you kind of rush over and try to like close it up and smooth it out. And, and, uh, but when you are going through a real trauma and a really profound thing, there's actually a that's harmful. You know, you need to have your time to sort through it and to be in pain and to not be afraid to be in pain, to not feel like you have to, you know, suddenly be whole when you're clearly not whole. I think that's very damaging to have the whole world rush you. Um, and I think, you know, I, I feel like we are all really changed by loss, this traumatic loss or, agreed upon loss or whatever kind of loss is in your life, it changes you and you don't, it's not, you know, a scab that heals with no scar. It's totally different. And I think that that isn't a very good analogy. You know, like I think we lose someone and then the loss sets up residence in your body and in your mind and in your soul and in your psyche and it stays. And it's not that you're forever crippled. It's that you're more complicated than you were. And, um, and that's, that's a good thing in so many ways. It's a good thing to be complicated and a nuanced person with like lots of different experiences. And you will be that person. Everybody's going to be that person if they're lucky and they stay alive. So um, I guess, you know, I just, I wanted to feel like when we said healing, we were talking about something that wasn't a straight line, you know, from, from broken to whole, but that was something like from broken, always a little broken, but, but okay, <laughs> you know, and to let that loss really have its place. It's such a challenge to confront traumatic loss or a really terrible thing that happens to you, but it, it's the only way 
that you won't be a prisoner of that thing. I really believe that. I mean, did you find that writing was a way that you could emotionally um, relate to the situation or was that therapeutic for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in some ways I felt so out of control as my mom was in those final weeks when my mom was dying. And I am a writer and writing at that moment offered me this way of controlling something. Some aspect of it was still in my control. And that was the portrayal, right? Like I could go upstairs and I could portray it. And that was the only thing I really had any power to do. Everything else was way outside of my ability. (laughs) And um, so in that way, it was comforting for somebody who, you know, all people kind of like order. It's not that you have to be a total control freak, although I'm probably a little bit control freaky, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it was so much because it's not really a book about like just expressing emotion. It's definitely a book about portraying a, a family, um, and not about, I would say 60 to 90 pages of it were from the moments in the house. And then the rest of it was written actually quite a bit later. Um, I didn't have any of the stuff from the past from my childhood in the book. Originally, it was all in the house, very claustrophobic. Um, so I had to open it up and add all of that stuff, add the second part, you know, just, yeah. But I think the urgency of the book and also, you know, I knew, I knew instinctually writing it that if I didn't write that stuff down, it would be gone. I would forget because I could feel my mind closing over the days. Like the day would end and I couldn't even remember what had happened in it at the end of the day because, you know, your mind's kind of protecting you in a certain way. And so I wanted to keep a record because it was so heightened and also so absurd and kind of funny and dark and people behave kind of unbelievably in the face of a tragedy and that seemed... You know, it was not only having some control over it, it was also like finding some humor in some of it, too, because there were so many days where, you know, we'd get a hospital chair and it would be absurd or my grandfather would be absurd. And I wanted that stuff to stay as part of the record, too. Mercy is still in your life. You have a new baby. Are you working on any other projects? Yeah, I have a book coming out in April that is a collaboration with a whole lot of women on women's relationship to ambition and striving. So it's it's like 25 essays about women and what they think about ambition. It's going to be really cool. It's called Double Bind. I look forward to to reading it. I'm really excited to. And I, I will say again, the book is scored on me. Your words, your pain. I can't thank you enough for having the courage to share this book. Everyone who is even thinking about planning um, for end of life or even, you know, having someone... Um, facing a serious illness. I don't know if it's a book for right in the middle of it to read, but it is, it's, it's a raw, true story of love and loss and the not so straight path of healing afterwards. One of the most wonderful letters that I got um, when the Mercy Papers came out was from a father who read it because he wanted to relate to his daughter when they were losing, you know, their wife and mother, his wife, her mother. And I thought that was such a I don't know, just a beautiful thing for if you want to understand 
someone going through a loss. I, I love that. That was one of the highest compliments I received was that he felt like he could understand his daughter better. I think that is amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for your time. Um, I am so curious. I'd love to, I, I, I wanted to know what Mercy looked like, the dog. She's not in the room with me at the moment, but I can send you a picture. Yeah, do. The dog loved everybody. She's her own superstar. <laughs> It's amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Good luck on your future projects. I look forward to it. Um, And thanks again for the courage that it took. Thanks for finding the book and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Robin. Take care. You too. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.